In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The author and former radio show host Garrison Keillor, he once wrote an essay entitled After a Fall, in which one day Keillor puts on a jacket, walks out the front door of his house, and takes a plunge down five steps, landing on the sidewalk, flat on his back, legs in the air, and he said it took him a few seconds to decide whether it was funny or not. A woman stopped to ask if he was okay, and after Keeler assured her that he was fine, she smiled and trotted away. Her smile, he writes, has followed me into the house, and I see it now as a smirk, which is what it was. She was too polite to bend over and hoot and shriek and guffaw and cackle and cough and whoop and wheeze and slap her thighs and stomp on the ground, but it was all there in the smile. Keeler later says, I may have seen it her way, but she ran down the street, and now I can only see my side of the fall. I feel old and achy and ridiculous and cheapened by the whole experience. Now, maybe you've never had a fall. Uh, if that doesn't resonate, um, how about last week's headline from The Onion, powerful rush of shame consumes man as server flips over menu to reveal drink list. Have you ever experienced this kind of shame, hastily asking for the drink list at a restaurant when all the while it had been there right in front of you? I know those examples are petty, but I am petty, and they both deeply resonated with me. Life can be embarrassing. We spend an inordinate amount of time as people protecting and defending our dignity, trying to avoid being put to shame. And it's for good reason. Shame is deeply embedded into our society. I mean, the past few years, we have undergone a pandemic of shame. Not for everyone, but for many. The first question for those who tested positive to COVID was not, am I going to be okay? But it was, what did I do wrong? How could I have been so irresponsible? This is shameful. And we see shame clearest of all on the internet. The internet runs on shame. Former Twitter engineer once described mean tweets as an attempt to shame or punish someone publicly while broadcasting one's own virtue, brilliance, or tribal loyalties. But the heart and soul of online shaming is nothing new. Before the internet, people were shamed on television. Before that, the newspaper. Before that, the public square. Shame and the fear and desperate avoidance of shame is an inescapable part of life. Which is why shame is one of the main themes that Paul addresses in his letter to Timothy that we have this morning. Timothy was a fledgling pastor, and by that time Paul was seasoned and experienced in ministry, and so this is a letter from a mentor to his understudy. Paul was likely writing from prison he says, do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Later he says, I am not ashamed for I know the one in whom I have put my trust. So what's he talking about? Why would Timothy be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus? Well, we can speculate. Christians at that time may have been embarrassed 
by their lack of size, it was a ragtag group, or their lack of fame or honor in the Roman corridors of power and influence. But even more so, the Christian testimony of Jesus, it, it could not have sounded more ridiculous. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, Our Savior Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. The cross, you see, it was designed not just to put someone to death, but to mark them in shame, to portray them as subhuman. And it wouldn't only cause shame for the crucified, but anyone associated. Maybe you know a family that has been put to shame by a relative's actions. Well, relating to anyone crucified would have been deeply shameful. Anyone who considered themselves respectable would think the worship of a crucified man was too extreme, too distasteful to be taken seriously. We might think we've come a long way since then, but have we really? I mean, have you ever felt ashamed after being outed as a believer? Of course you have. You're, you're Episcopalians. <laughs> I remember I had just taken the job as music minister at Christ Church in my mid-twenties. I was reading a book on my front porch called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism, as in proclaiming the gospel to people, when my neighbor walked by on his way home. He was a filmmaker, he was very edgy and sophisticated. I thought he was cool, and I spent a lot of energy trying to convince him that I was cool, mostly by referencing obscure movies that I had never seen. And we got to talking, and he invites me over to his home studio, and I felt honored, and I accepted the invitation, and I take my book with me, and I quickly hide it behind my leg, the book about evangelism. I was there for about 45 minutes, and I spent the entire time worrying about what he would say. And he never saw the book, but I felt convicted afterwards. I mean, what was I embarrassed about? Now that I'm ordained, I'd like to think things have changed, but every time I get a haircut, the barber asks me what I do for a living, I'm tempted to say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in the service industry. Paul's words, they speak directly to my embarrassment and to yours as well, whatever you're embarrassed about. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Note that he's not telling Timothy to dig deep or to dig in or to buck up. He's not saying, you got this, Timothy. He's saying, our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, Timothy, there's nothing to be ashamed of anymore. Not weakness or failure or your own sin or death itself. Now, shame and glory, we often think that they're at opposite ends of the spectrum, but on the cross, they become one. One of our great hymns describes the cross saying, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. This is why we as Christians can boast in our weaknesses 
because the way Jesus defeated sin and death was by entering into them and becoming weak himself. And in the same way, he enters your shame so that you may be free of it. Paul, writing from jail, which is an extremely degrading place to be, he feels no shame. Why? Because the power of God is found in places of shame. Martin Luther King, in his 1966 convocation address to Illinois Wesleyan, he said of white oppressors, if he doesn't put you in jail, wonderful. Nobody with any sense loves to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail, you go in that jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. Even if he tries to kill you, you develop the inner conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so eternally true, some things so precious that they are worth dying for. It sounds a lot like Paul's letter to Timothy. And you know who couldn't agree more is Jesus, who saw you as something so precious that you were worth dying for. He doesn't put lipstick on your shame. He doesn't say it's no big deal. Instead, he takes it seriously. And through the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent that whispers shame into your ear that you are unlovable, that you are disgraced, that you should be embarrassed, that you are alone. And in shame, Adam and Eve covered their naked bodies with fig leaves and hid from God, but Christ's love boldly proclaims that it's safe to come out now. You don't have to hide. So what does this mean for you today? Well, wherever you are embarrassed, wherever you feel the slightest bit of shame about something you've done or something that has been done to you, know that it has no power because of the cross. The gospel, it may even help you come clean about whatever you're hiding, knowing that there is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. It means that you can even laugh at yourself in that same piece that Garrison Keillor wrote about his shameful plunge down the stairs. He says, God writes a lot of comedy. The trouble is he's stuck with so many bad actors who don't know how to play funny. In the cross, I mean, where, the, where there once was shame, there can be laughter. Above all, what this means for you is that Jesus welcomes himself into your shame right now. How does that affect how you see yourself in your life? Well, the 20th century playwright Thornton Wilder, he once wrote a three-page play called Now the Servant's Name Was Malchus. Stay with me. It's based on the passage that during Jesus' arrest, you remember when Peter rushes to Jesus' defense and he cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest? Well, that guy's name was Malchus. And Wilder, he zones in on what it would be like to be Malchus today in heaven. So Wilder sets the scene. It's it's been 2,000 years since the incident where Malchus lost his ear. Malchus, he comes to visit Jesus who's holding office hours. And after Jesus asks him why he's come, 
Malchus sheepishly states his purpose. It's, it's hardly worth mentioning. Most of the time, Lord, we're very happy up here. Nothing disturbs us at our games. But whenever someone on earth thinks about us, we're aware of it, pleasantly or unpleasantly. And because I'm in your book, someone is always reading about me and thinking about me for a moment, and in the middle of my games, I feel lit. And what they think is, is that I'm ridiculous. And Jesus, he's listening carefully, and he figures out that Malchus is requesting that his name be erased from the Bible. To which Malchus responds eagerly, Yes, sir, I thought you could just maybe make the pages become blank at that place. That's a reasonable request. I mean, when you think about it, can you imagine millions of people throughout history pigeonholing you as the ridiculous guy who got his ear cut off? But then Jesus responds remarkably. But Malchus, he says, I am ridiculous too. My promises were so vast that I'm either divine or ridiculous. He pauses and then says, Malchus, will you be ridiculous with me? The astonished Malchus responds to Jesus' invitation. He's saying, yes, sir, I'll stay. I'm glad to stay, though in a way I haven't any right to be here. In other words, his shame of being ridiculous is covered by Christ's own ridiculousness. Here we see that God's wisdom is often hiding beneath what we are embarrassed about. Whenever we find ourselves to be ridiculous, there's no better company in which to be than Christ himself. All those who see me laugh at me, he says in the Psalms. They shout at me and they make fun of me. The great irony, of course, is that the cross, the very mark of shame, is where your shame was defeated once and for all. I'll close with a prayer for Holy Week in the Book of Common Prayer. Let us pray. O God, by the passion of your blessed Son, you made an instrument of shameful death to be for us the means of life. Grant us so to glory in the cross of Christ that we may gladly suffer shame and loss for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.